I have been speaking to your hearts uh, through the very uh, powerful, sensitive, uh, involved subject of forgiveness. And uh, we are complex beings. God deals with us very completely. We tend to compartmentalize. He sees us as a whole, and I'm very grateful that he can do that. We, however, uh, sometimes need to take things a piece at a time uh, in order to understand uh, fully. So in our progression through the life of Joseph, I would like to finish, come to our last principle, addressing your mind. We'll see next week in Mother's Day uh, how that can speak to our hearts and practical behavior as well. In fact, I'll even show you that as we move into communion at the end of the message. But that being said, I'd like to address your thinking today. Here's what we need to understand from the end of the story of Joseph's life. God is sovereign and we must be selfless. And we dare not miss this. So I want to read the passage, and then I want to try and give you an image today that might help us understand what we can of God's sovereignty and our appropriate response to that. And if you don't even know what God's sovereignty means, what that word means, we're going to uh, look at that definition, and you'll see that it's an important concept for all of us to understand and not difficult uh, to understand. So Genesis chapter 50 I'd like to read verses 15 to 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers their sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came to him and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. And I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. I'd like to pray for a moment before we dig into this because there's something here that you really, really dare not miss. And let's ask the Lord to open our hearts and minds to that. God, we thank you for being who you are. You are good, you are kind, you are loving, and we are so grateful, and you have made yourself known to us in the most tangible, compassionate, caring ways. You are also majestic, high, mighty. You are other. You are beyond us, and your ways are higher than our ways. Would you help us understand more of that today so that we can respond, as we should, in praise, in adoration, in submission, in worship. And help us see how some of that has everything to do with who we are, where we are, right here and now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Here's a fact. 
God's and man's intentions coexist. The story shows that, and Joseph says it in just so many words that I read, chapter 50, verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. The Hebrew verb is exactly the same one. To account, to calculate, determine or design. There is intention all over this on the part of man and the part of God. It is in the coexistence of God's and man's intentions that we come to understand whatever we can of God's sovereignty. Now, let me explain what sovereignty is. The sovereignty of God is the teaching that all things are under God's rule and control, that nothing happens without his direction or permission. His purposes are all inclusive, never thwarted. Nothing takes him by surprise. The sovereignty of God is not merely that God has the power and the right to govern all things, but that he does so and he always does so without exception. In other words, God is not sovereign just in principle, but sovereign in practice. Because this is true, we can see the following things. Now, I put this on your, uh, in your notes this morning, so look at that because I'm going to give you a lot of information. There's no way you can write it down and you're having to follow my thinking, so you probably can't even follow that, okay? But let me try. Coexistence of God and man's intentions. One is always accomplished, God's intentions. The other is always used, man's intentions. This is destiny. One is beyond your control, God's intentions. The other is your responsibility, man's intentions. This is responsibility. One teaches you about God, God's intentions. The other teaches you about yourself, man's intentions. This is learning. One produces God's purpose, God's intentions. The other produces man's purpose, man's intentions. One of these is about submission. The other one is about selfishness. So let me unwrap this a little bit more for you. One is always accomplished, God's intentions. The other is always used, man's intentions. This is about destiny. This shows God's omnipotence. In his incomprehensible and immeasurable power, there is a measure of destiny. He is omniscient completely all-knowing and aware of all things. This then means that he has the foreknowledge of what will happen, that he uses for his purposes. This makes sense of predestination. It's not robotic, fatalistic happenings. But his knowledge, combined with his power, means he uses all things, including man's intentions, either good or bad, so that his purposes are fully accomplished. Pretty heady stuff, huh? One is beyond your control, God's intentions. The other one is your responsibility, man's intentions. This is about responsibility. Though God can and will use all things for his purposes, it does not negate that man is responsible for what he intends. God is not the author of sin. So that which is evil has come about as a result of the acts that man has intentionally committed. We are responsible and must answer for that. The opposite of that is also true. God is also glorified by the will of man to honor and praise and obey him. This also is an intention for which we're responsible and, in fact, duly rewarded. So one is always accomplished, that's God's. The other is always used, that's man's, this is destiny. One is beyond your control, that's God's. The other is your responsibility, that's man's. This is about responsibility. You're responsible for your intentions, good or bad. 
Now we move on to the next one. One, inten- one teaches you about God, God's intentions. The other teaches you about yourself, man's intentions. This is about learning. His intentions are all and always good. He blesses, he provides, he equips, he empowers, he directs, he loves at the most sacrificial level. We're going to celebrate that this morning. He gives in the most significant measure. How could the giving of his own son be any greater than anything anyone could ever give? You say, well, but what about, you know, hell and judgment and all that? Even in his holy justice of what is evil, he is good because he's protecting that which is good. He is caring for those who respond to his goodness. He is the one who pays the ultimate price for both this purity and provision. His intentions teach you about himself. He is wholly good. Our intentions, on the other hand, are not good inherently. We are selfish and self-serving. We naturally take and do not naturally give. We are suspect in our choices and avoid personal sacrifice and tend to love for our own benefit and satisfaction. Even what we do that is good... We tend to protect our own interests. We care for that which benefits us. We pay as little as possible to obtain as much as we can. That's what sales are all about, right? Our intentions teach us about ourselves, that we are not inherently good. Now, don't miss me. I'm not saying there's nothing good in you. I'm saying you are not inherently good. Not without any good, but not inherently good. One produces God's purpose, God's. This is about submission. The other produces man's purpose, man's. And this is about selfishness. So, if we truly accept what we have understood so far about sovereignty, that God has everything under his control, that I have responsibility to respond to his power overall, that he is good in all that he does, and I am not by definition intentionally good in everything that I do, then I find a response in me that he produces of submission. Because he's God, and I'm not, and he's good, and he wants me, who's not, in a perfect relationship with him. And so I submit. If I do not accept or understand what God has revealed about himself and his sovereignty, well, then what do I do? Well, then I recognize no greater power in life than me. I believe that I am the determining force of my own destiny, and I cannot draw on an implicit source of good for any help, So I selfishly struggle for all I can possibly gain on my own. And we're selfish. In this, I find a response that produces in myself selfishness. Now, I think the verses that we read today illustrate these truths in the story that's right in front of us. Joseph's brothers, the verses right out of what I read. They don't accept this. They were depending upon their father to care for them, not God. They didn't recognize him as sovereign. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, oh no, now dad's gone, what are we going to do? They don't see God in control. Well, what if Joseph, you know, wants to take it out on us? They lie, not trusting in God's good intentions, but acting on their own selfish ones. Hey, listen, I'll tell you what, I'm sorry, I'm just saying, you know, um, listen, your dad said that um, when, when when I'm gone, then you... And they don't submit to God's intentions but seek their own way of seeking forgiveness please 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 forgive us please please 
They do not recognize God's sovereignty, so they pursue whatever they pursue in this self-seeking way, in this selfish way. Now, the only appropriate response to God's sovereignty is man's selflessness. And this is seen in Joseph's response, and it's remarkable. Now, we've talked about the struggle that he went through to get here. This was not easy. He's not, you know, this saint from beginning to end. But we do see at the end of the story that all of his selfishness, seemingly, really, he gave up. He, he died to himself, and he shows himself as selfless in this setting. He sees God as absolutely sovereign in this situation and good and that his intentions are good and that he has it all under control. And so he says to his brothers, look, don't you realize who's in control? Don't be afraid. Twice he says it in the passage. 365 times it's mentioned in the Bible. Don't be afraid or fear not or some version of that. One for every day of the year just in case you had a day when you were a little afraid. God would show up and say, wait a minute, day 327, don't be afraid, because God's in control, He's sovereign. Joseph recognizes his responsibility. Just because God's in control doesn't mean I'm not responsible. He sees his responsibility. Listen, I will provide for you. Don't you see? He put me here so I can provide for you. There's God's sovereignty and my responsibility. He learns his place. Am I in the place of God that I should judge you? And he reassures them of God's goodness. And then he actually just loses himself in God's goodness. He spoke kindly to them. He submits to God's plans, not his own. He says no to his selfish desires of vengeance. And he is selfless. Does your head hurt yet? Perhaps it's impossible to reduce an explanation of life and true purpose, because we're kind of talking about that purpose for everything, to one simple analogy. But let me try with an object lesson this morning. And that's, that's what's behind you. You probably wondered, if you didn't, you just thought we don't know how to clean up around here. So I want to use this to help us understand something. This something. If I were to attempt from this, exa- this example in Scripture, would it not be accurate to sum things up with this? That there is a coexistence of two streams of intention. God's and man's. I think most people would agree. I think most religions of the world do. By their definition, they would agree. They define God in so many different ways. But there is something bigger than us, and then there's us. And we both are, have these two streams of intention. Even atheists who deny a personal God recognize that there is some kind of common good out there that we're supposed to... Uh, have us guide our behavior, you know, in some way or another. Every, even an atheist says, well, you know, people need to be good and better than they are, or, you know, bad people are, should be there and good people should be here. And then there's us, whatever we are. Some kind of sensitivity to the fact that God has revealed himself and he is there and I'm here. There is good and there is evil. There are things that are going to happen and they're not not all going to be good. And and then there's us and we must do what we can as we face these different things. So where do we go wrong? 
If everyone knows that there are two streams of intention, ours and another's, where's the problem? Why all of the different religions? Why the problem of sin? How come we haven't solved it yet? I am suggesting that this mistake is made by thinking that these two streams of intention are equal to each other. Yet we tend to think that. Most religions of the world speak of a, bat, of a battle between good and evil, and we hope that the good wins out. We're not really sure it should, but you know we don't really know. These things are in counter-opposition, and, and we're hoping the good wins out. Or agnosticism, there's fate and man's ability, hoping I come out okay in the end. Or even atheism, there's natural forces and man's ingenuity, making the best of the situation. And then once again us. We see the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And as we've talked about that for many, many years, I've heard it many, many times, it's like two tracks of a railroad track. They're going in the same direction. You can't seem to get them to come together because they don't seem to line up. But somehow off in the future, if you look far enough, they meet. That's one of the ways it's been described. The only problem is, if you walk the tracks, you can walk as far as you want, and they never come together. So how does this work? What if they were not equal? What if one was greater than the other? What if they were not parallel forces going in the same direction? What if, in fact, they did not work together, but rather they intersected each other? And in their intersection, the one accomplished all that he wanted, and without the greater, the lesser would have no power, purpose, or true meaning. But because they do intersect, the lesser does have power, purpose, and true meaning. What if an image of these coexistent realities was not two tracks that are parallel, that are equal, but instead one single intersection? Actually, it's a multitude of immeasurable and uncountable intersections, but one in particular that leads to the rest all making sense. One is divine. That's why I have a white tube and a white two-by-four. Because this is God's intention here. The other is not divine. That's the black one. That represents us. Our intentions are not inherently good. But we see that they are not, or I'm suggesting that they're not parallel. So instead, one of these is to be central and to have a value far beyond the other because it's divine, because his intentions are sovereignly understood and intended. They are, they are what they are because he is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all good. And so they're not equal. This one is so much more important. And when you walked in today, you looked at, wondered any number of things, but one of the conclusions, whether you 
consciously or subconsciously uh, noted is that these two two-by-fours were the same length. Why? Because they came out of the tubes at the same angle, and your brain said to you, that means that the rest of it's going down to the bottom. But the fact of the matter is, they're not equal. One is shorter than the other. One is not as great as the other. They are not in harmony. One is perfectly good. The other one is in opposition. It's not perfectly good. Not inherently good. And they do not meet like tracks eventually in the middle, but rather they intersect with each other in opposition to each other. Where and how they meet was intended by God. The perfect sacrifice for sin. The other was intended by man. To put to death all that called him to submit to God. Do you see it? Perfectly and purely, both of them are intentional and fully intentional by both, and yet they accomplish the purpose of the greater. And without both of them, the greatest purpose of the greater would never have been accomplished. What we have in this sovereign intersection of man and God is not synergy, but either submission to the greater or selfishness of the lesser. I suggest the cross is an image that visualizes God's sovereignty and our selfishness. In that intersection, we either find forgiveness and we submit, or we find find condemnation, walking away, pursuing our own purposes. Or another way we might put it is that there are two voices. One is the crowd, man's intentions, and one is the cross, God's intentions. And what do those voices sound like? The crowd says, follow us, we're going this way. And God says, follow me, I'm going this way. And there's a change of direction called for. That's why repentance means to turn around because there's a change that's made. The crowd says, rely on yourself. I mean, come on, I'm not worthless. I I can do something, so I'm shorter than he is. Who cares? He's God, I'm not. I can deal with that. But I'm not, you know, I'm somebody, aren't I? The cross says, you find who you are by relying on Him. Without Him, you're you're nothing, but when you are in Him, you are a part of His perfect purposes being fulfilled. You know, the crowd says, earn your worth. Come on, can I do something? Can I be somebody? And the cross says, I am your worth. Find it in me. The cross says, 
bear your burdens. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm strong. This is something I can do. And the cross says, nail your burdens to me. The cross says, be happy. This offers you an opportunity to be holy, finding perfectly the righteousness of Christ. The cross says, if it feels good, do it. The cross says, for love's sake, endure it. The cross says, honor yourself. The cross calls you to humble yourself. The crowd says, most of all, do. Do what you want, do what you can, do whatever you think is best. In fact, why not? We're in the land of opportunity. The cross says, most of all, believe it is done. You don't need to do, you need to understand what has been done. God in all of his sovereignty intersects both the intentions of man and himself to accomplish all that he desires. And that intersection was the most important. And it leads to just, as I've said, a myriad of other ones. Where even though you didn't mean it for good, he'll use it for good. Or someone else intended it for evil, he can and he will use it for his purposes. And he'll even take your best of intentions and use them for his good purposes. Time and time and time again. Why? Because he's sovereign. Because he can. Because he's that powerful. He's that all-knowing. And he's that good. What a great place to go this morning. The cross. And I'd like to ask us to celebrate this morning the cross. The ultimate act of God's goodness, power, and knowledge taking our inherent evil and using it for our good and for His glory. It's amazing, isn't it? God is that great. And He is that good. And next week I'm going to take you to some of the more practical outworkings of what that means. But I want us to stop and I want us to celebrate the sovereignty of God. It's His ability to accomplish all He intends through His power and His knowledge and the use of our intentions, whether they are good or bad. If you accept this, you submit to the greater. But if you don't, you're left pursuing yourself as the greater in self-seeking ways, trying to accomplish what you can never accomplish. We're all guilty of this to some degree or another. And this is why He provided His Son and the perfect sacrifice on the cross, the perfect intersection of both His and our intentions to accomplish His purpose. 
And that's why we celebrate He gave us these symbols to be reminded that a literal, physical body like you have that lived and breathed and bled and died was given for you. And that's why He took the bread, He broke it and said, this is my body given for you. And the shedding of His blood, which is represented in the cup. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, the Bible says. So, so He hung, and He shed His blood, and He died, so that that blood might speak forever towards your forgiveness. If you don't accept this, you're like Joseph's brothers. You're depending upon somebody else for your care. You don't see that God's in control. You, you Maybe you're lying with the best of good intentions. You, you don't submit to God's intentions. If, if you're that way and you just don't see, or maybe now you've come to see that, that God is that good, there's some guided prayers, a little green sheet that's in your bulletin. It looks like this. You know, maybe that'll help you articulate some of the things that you would like to say to him, particularly when it comes to an issue of belief. Our sister Wendy is having trouble again. And uh, don't let this disturb you. Wendy, uh, it it is disturbing. I'm not uh, not going to uh, minimize that. Um, Wendy has some difficulty with... um, with uh, with these attacks and uh, we've spoken with her we've spoken to her doctors and uh, EMTs will be here in a little while um, and uh, care for her and um, so you can pray for her if you'd like to she is a great believer in God's good intentions and she has suffered some very very difficult things in her life and she knows that God has used them in spite of those evil things for his purposes so actually if she had an opportunity because I've spoken with her many times she would say to you God is good trust him in that even though it may not seem so so I'd ask you now to examine your hearts and will you submit or would you be selfish Allow God to work in your hearts to show you what it is that is holding you back from trusting Him with all things, good and evil. And then the men are going to come and they're going to distribute the bread. And, and when they come, we, we practice here taking the, the bread by ourselves because that's a personal act of response to God, just individually showing Him that. And later we'll take the cup together. Gentlemen, will you come and reflect personally now as they distribute this?